We've been in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 9 for the last couple of weeks. We saw that if we were to have peace in our lives, then we need to be praying about everything. If we were to have peace in our lives, it means we need to be thinking about the right things. And today, we are going to see that if we are going to have peace in our lives, then we need to be practicing the right things. Practicing the right things. Language is a funny thing. Words have more than one meaning, to be sure. For example, the word fast can mean to be steady, excuse me, to be speedy, as in a fast runner. Or just the opposite, it can mean to be immovable, as a bolt that is rusted fast. The word for net can refer to a device for catching fish, as in cast out your net, or it can refer to that which is remaining, as in a net sum. The word ball can refer to a child's toy that is thrown, or a large formal gathering for dancing as in a masquerade ball. You get my drift? Not a snow drift, but uh, you get my meaning. All right. Now, let's draw attention to the word practice, for that's what is found in our text. Practice these things. The word practice can mean to do an act repeatedly with the intent of gaining proficiency or ability as to practice the piano. Or it can mean to pursue a profession or a career as to practice medicine. There were three men who were standing around. One man said to the second man, what do you do? The first man said, I practice medicine. The second man said to the third, I never want to go to him. He said, why not? Well, because I don't want him to be practicing on me. Okay. Now, now you know why I don't tell jokes, okay? I just, I just preach. <clears throat> in the professional realm, to practice is to be engaged in work in the area of one's profession. For example, we speak of attorney having a law practice. Attorneys who have a law practice are attorneys that have completed their education, have received a law degree, and now are giving themselves and functioning in that manner. There are people that have law degrees who do other things than practice law. For example, there are many who have law degrees who are politicians. And though they don't practice law, they are engaged in other activities or duties. Or we speak of a medical doctor who would be practicing medicine. But there are a lot of medical doctors who don't practice medicine. Some are teachers. Some are pharmaceutical reps. Some are researchers. So there are people that are doctors who, who practice medicine and those that do not. In our text, it's talking about being a practicing Christian. Now, you may have heard the term, because it's most often associated when we think that word practice, you may have heard the term of a practicing Catholic. A practicing Catholic. A non-practicing Catholic would be a, a person who was probably baptized as an infant, maybe have gone to parochial school, but now no longer attends mass or confession or is actively engaged in the Catholic Church. Whereas a, professor, uh, a practicing Catholic is a person who regularly attends mass uh, regularly attends confession, uh, is engaged in the activity of the Catholic Church. 
In our text, it's talking about being a practicing Christian, not a person who is a Christian in name only. And that really is a misnomer, if you will. Uh, for there is no such thing as a person who is a, a Christian in name only. Uh, we know that there's a category for that. We know that there are people who call themselves Christians that don't have faith and who do not practice their, their religious beliefs, but, but they are not true Christians. As one person has said, and I'll say one person because it's been attributed to a number of different individuals, okay, uh, being a, a person who sits in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than a person who sits in a garage makes them a car. Uh, there, uh, there is a, a world of difference between a person who is practicing their faith. And so this morning, the exhortation is to practice our faith. And there are four specific realms in which it speaks of the importance of practicing our faith, primarily in the context to have the, the peace that this passage is talking about. If we're really going to know that, that peace, that comfort of our Christian faith, then we must practice our faith. But it is broader than that, for it fits the whole context of the book of Philippians, and that is that as Christians, we must practice our faith in general. So we want to look at these four areas uh, that are given to us in Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, that's our actual text this morning as we have been uh, going through these uh, various uh, passages verse by verse. So theme, what are the things that we are to practice as Christians? Well, first, we must practice the things that we have learned. Notice Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. So the first category are the things that are learned. There is more to learning than to simply be acquiring information. The learner must apply the information that he or she has acquired. They must understand the relevance and practicality of what they have learned. And you think of that word practicality. Notice how that's related to our word for practice, okay? It has relevance. It has meaning. You can put it to good use. It is practical. So a person who is a learner is a person who has come to understand truth. In 2 Timothy... It refers to individuals who, listen to these words, 2 Timothy 3, 7, who always are learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of the truth. There are those individuals who study and study and study. And they may give themselves to the word of God, but yet never get to the place where that word has a positive influence on their lives. There are people that have given themselves to the study of God's word, but yet have not even become born again. I'm uh, reminded of uh, one of the uh, very well-known uh, commentators, William Barclay. And uh, Barclay has some very interesting things to say in a number of his commentaries. But he hasn't come to a saving knowledge 
of the Lord Jesus Christ. Here is a person who's ever learning, ever studying, ever given themselves to the word, but hasn't come to that very practical application in which they have come to realize the need of placing their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. So as this passage is telling us, we must be people who aren't simply learners in the sense that we are acquiring information, but we are true learners in the sense that we've come to understand its application. Our call to worship this morning is taken from a very uh, well-known passage in the book of James that talks about this very same issue, where it says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once, forgets what he was like. So it's like a person, it says, that is a hearer of the word, but not a doer of the word, likens it unto a person who looks into a mirror. And a person who looks into a mirror may look and see that their hair is disheveled. And at that moment, they look and they see that their hair is disheveled. But if they look away and never bother to comb it, after a while they forget that their hair was disheveled. It has no meaningful effect upon their life. What good was it to look in the mirror if you're not going to pick out a comb and comb it? And the thought is, what good is it to study the Word of God if you don't get to the place where you commit yourself to living out its truth? What value is there in simply reiterating things that you, quote, know if they haven't come to impact or affect your life? So the first thing we must practice is we must practice the things that we learn, the knowledge that we are acquiring. Second, we must practice the things that are received, it tells us in verse 9. What you have learned and received. Received is actually a technical term for that which is handed down from one person to another. Uh, Gerald F. Hawthorne says this, and I quote, To receive implies that the obligation of the Philippians was not only to receive it, but believe it, act upon it, and also to pass it carefully on to others. So there's four elements in receiving. There's receiving it, excuse me, believing it, acting upon it, and passing it on. Now, to show you that that really is consistent with the Word of God teaches, I want us to look at, at uh, well, the first passage I'll just read to you, the second I want us to look at. The first example is communion. Paul writes in regarding to communion, for I received from the Lord what also I delivered to you. That is the essence of this word received. It has the, the connotation of something that has been entrusted to you in order to pass on to someone else. All right? That you have received it in order to pass it on to someone else. For I received the Lord that which also I delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. 
Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So in receiving this, there was an activity. They weren't simply to learn about the Lord's Supper, but now they were to actively engage in the participation in the Lord's Supper. They were to act upon it. They were to act it out. They were to be engaged in the actual drinking of the cup and eating of the bread. But not only were they to engage in the Lord's Supper, but they were to proclaim the meaning of the Lord's Supper so that others would engage in the Lord's Supper. And so that's been handed down to us till today. And we celebrate communion as we have received the message of communion, as we have learned it, as we have embraced it, as we have acted upon it, as we have practiced it, and now we pass it on. I'd like you to look at another place where uh, reception is used. Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes this. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. So when he says, in which you received, it's the same word that's in our text. And he says, in which you stand, meaning they're, they're, they, they, they have been given the gospel, they believe the gospel, they are practicing the gospel, they're standing in the gospel. By which also you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you have believed in vain, meaning that they're no longer practicing it. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what also I received. You see, there is that aspect of passing it on. I have given to you what I first received. That Christ died for our sins, in according with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised in the, on the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. And he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This passage is teaching us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and is consistent with the book of Philippians, that we are not to be end users of the gospel. The gospel has not been given to us simply for our own benefit. It hasn't been given to us with the intent that it stops there. But we have received the gospel. And as Paul writes to Timothy, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We are to share the Gospels with others, who in turn will receive it, who will believe it, who will act upon it, and then pass it on to still others. In that sense, the Gospel is like a baton that is to be passed from one person to another. Now, when you receive a baton, right? And I think everybody has seen a relay race. We got some guys here that are, that are state uh, renowned for their relay racing. But uh, you've, everybody's seen a relay race or participated in a relay race. When you receive 
a baton, you don't just stand there, okay? Somebody hands you a baton. I got a baton, you know? And, and uh, no, what do you do when you receive a baton? You run with it. You take it and you move out. This word reception has this aspect of acting upon what you have received. You have this baton. It has been passed to you. Now you run. And at the end of that race, what do you do? You pass it on to another individual who takes it and runs with it. That's what this passage is talking about when it says, practice the things that you have received. Take it, run with it, and then pass it on to someone else. Even as Paul had passed on the faith to these Philippians. Now these Philippians are to pass on that very same faith to someone else. And that is true of us who have received the knowledge of the gospel. Who have learned the truths of God's word. We are to take those truths. We are to apply them. Having replied them, now we are to receive them. We are to take them. We are to run with them. And we are to be sure to pass them on to someone else. Third, we must practice the things that we have heard about Paul and others. We ought to value those whom we have received these things. Back to the baton illustration. We ought to appreciate the way in which those who have run the legs before us have run. All found in this simple word, heard. What you have learned, received, and heard. They had heard a great deal about the Apostle Paul. It's speaking of his reputation. It's speaking of his conduct, of which Paul alludes to in Philippians chapter 3. If you turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. And in Philippians chapter 3, it says this, starting in verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God in glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I am more. Uh, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. They had heard all these things about the Apostle Paul. They had heard how he'd been a persecutor of the church. Here he doesn't go in detail does elsewhere, such as in the book of Galatians. But they all knew that. They all knew that he was a Jewish individual. They knew he had been circumcised. They had heard about these things of the Apostle Paul. Then he goes on to say in verse 7, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. 
because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, and for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but refuse, in order that I may gain Christ, and be found in him, not having righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God that depends on faith. They had heard the truth from Paul. They had also heard about how these truths affected Paul's life. He didn't simply say that you don't need to be circumcised. Paul said, I was circumcised. But now I don't put any confidence in that at all. It is meaningless to me. It doesn't advance my relationship to Jesus Christ. Therefore, don't be circumcised. But value what I am telling you from the person that you have heard it from. Okay? Don't follow these false teachers, but follow those that have put into practice the things that they are teaching. Paul was authentic. He wasn't just giving lip service to certain doctrinal truths, but these were truths that changed his life, that moved him from being a persecutor of the church to now be willing to die for that very faith that he once was persecuting people for. So they were to value what they were receiving because of who they were receiving it from. Okay? They could see, excuse me, they heard from Paul, and they heard about Paul the things that were consistent. Okay? So two aspects. They heard from Paul, and they heard about Paul. And what they heard about was consistent with what they had heard from. He was practicing the things that he preached. Then the fourth area is we must practice the things that we have seen so that uh, we might establish good role models. Notice verse 9. What you have learned and received and heard and now these words, and seen in me. Practice those things. Uh, we are looking at the things that they had seen in Paul. Turn with me to Philippians 1.29. Philippians 1.29 and verses... 129 and 30, it says this, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had. Okay, So you saw within me a conflict. A conflict. What is that conflict? Go back to verse 21. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. The Philippians had seen the way in which Paul lived out the tension of being in this world, but not of this world. He was a particular, unique kind of role model. The tension 
of not being in this world, uh, uh, of being in this world, but not being of the world. Notice Philippians 3.17. Brothers, 3.17. Talking about the things which you have seen. So notice what 3.17 says. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So it isn't just Paul, but it's Paul and people like him. Okay? Keep your eyes on that kind of person. It's like follow the leader. Okay? Keep that kind of person in your eyesight. Keep them in your focus. Notice verse 18. Why? For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things as opposed to set your mind on heavenly things. The things which are lovely, just, true, perfect. Verse 8. Okay, moving on. Verse 19. The end is destruction. God is their appetite. They glory in their shame. Mind set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to blight like his glorious body, by the power that enables him to be subject to all things. Paul says there is a, there is a tension. I long to be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in this world is more necessary for you. And so I am convinced at this present time that I'm going to remain in this world in order that I might be able to minister to you. Paul says, keep your eyes on those kinds of people. People who understand the tension, the tension of the desire to be with Christ and living their lives in meaningful and purposeful ways now. The emphasis is on being a good example and of following a good example. For not only are we to follow the good example, but then we are to become the good example for the people who follow us. Paul writes to Timothy, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Conduct yourself in such a way that people have someone to look to as a model of how they should live. Our world is in desperate need of good role models. People that they can look up to. People that they can follow. And we need to commit ourselves to following good people and then being though that good person that other people can follow as well. It begins in the home with the parents and it moves to the church. And that's why the Bible says that an elder must have his, his family in order. And it moves to the world of whom Philippians says that we shine as lights in this world that we provide a witness, not just a verbal witness, 
but a witness that is, can be seen. Somebody who practices what they teach. Somebody who lives out the teachings of the Word of God. Somebody who fleshes it out. One of the big words that are now being used in theology quite regularly is talking about incarnational theology. Uh, even as the Son of God was incarnated, the aspect here is emphasizing the fact that we need to be incarnating the gospel truth. We are to be fleshing it out. We are to live it in such a way that people can understand it and be able to pass it on to still others. Biographies are good and fine. I love biographies. I love all kinds of biographies, especially Christian biographies. But it's not enough to read about good historical believers in the past. We need living, breathing role models. We need people that today are living life's experience and watching closely how they negotiate through life how they handle their family, how they handle the injustices that they encounter, how they incorporate the truth that they are learning. So that we become this living, believing, breathing role model. People that we can imitate, pattern our lives after, watch how they live, see how they do it. And you see, we need those role models in every facet of life. People who can show us what it means to be a Christian teacher. Not necessarily a teacher in a Christian school, but a Christian teacher. How does a Christian teacher act differently than a believer who is who, a teacher who is not a believer? How does being a Christian affect the way I handle my class? How does it affect the way in which I teach truth? What does it mean to be a Christian businessman? How does that change? How does that look different from the businessman who isn't a Christian? In their work ethic, in their honesty, in their integrity, in their paying of taxes. You see, in all area of life, how does being a Christian look differently? How is it different to be a Christian husband? than a non-Christian husband? How is it different to be a Christian wife as opposed to a non-Christian wife? A Christian father as opposed to a non-Christian father? A Christian athlete as opposed to an athlete who doesn't know Christ? A Christian friend as opposed to having a friend who doesn't know Christ? In all fears and aspects of life, what does it look like to take this book that we have learned from that we have received, that we have heard about other people living. Now, how does that look in our lives so that we can say to others, follow my example. Follow my pattern. And we don't have the opportunity to say, as so many want to say, do as I say, but not as I do. The Christian never has that opportunity. It always ought to be, do as I say and do as I do, for there needs to be a consistency. We are to be practicing these things. 
meaning that we do them over and over and over again, consistent with our being a Christian. We act the way Christians act. We do what Christians do. We believe what Christians believe. We submit to God the way Christians submit to God. We live out the teaching of the scriptures. That is our ultimate duty and responsibility. That's what godliness is. That's what practical spirituality is. Simply living out what we have come to know is true and believe. If we're going to have peace in our lives, we must do that. But far beyond simply having peace in our lives, if we're going to be the godly witness that Philippian calls us to do, where it says that we are to do these things not only in Paul's presence but also in his absence, then we need to adopt this kind of lifestyle. And that's perhaps the best way to summarize that verse in verse 9. It's talking about a lifestyle. Moving from things that we have learned to things now that we are able to teach others in word and in action. Where we can invite people not only to listen to what we say in our teaching in our Sunday school classes and as you teach your children at home, but you can also say, watch me if you want to know what it means to be a Christian husband. Watch me if you want to know what it means to be a Christian father. Watch me if you want to know what it means to be a Christian businessman, a Christian teacher. Okay, I'll help you in these things. You see, that is a, a solemn responsibility. And it's one of which, unfortunately, many Christians want to shirk. They, 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 want, they want to not do that, okay? Because it is such a responsibility, okay? They don't want people to be modeling them. They don't want people to look up to them. Uh, remember the words of Charles Barkley, if you remember who Charles Barkley was, a basketball player that uh, received a lot of... Uh, guff for the way in which he would conduct himself on the court. I remember Charles Barkley said, I never signed up to be a role model. So I signed up to be a basketball player. I never signed up to be a role model. Sometimes Christians think, you know, I never signed up to be a role model. Oh, yes, you did. Oh, yes, you did. When you submitted yourself to Jesus Christ, you committed yourself to be a follower of him. You committed yourself to be an imitator of him. You committed yourself to be, being made in the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. When you received the gospel, what you were handed was a baton. It was not a lead weight. You were not intended to be an end user. This wasn't just so that you could be saved. But you were handed the gospel so that you could take it and run with it. So that you could have a changed life and demonstrated what it meant to be a child of God. So that people could hear about your reputation and value what you are now passing on to them because they value your reputation. And then going even a step further than becoming the role model, being the example of which people can look to. People need to know how. 
to live out their faith. We who are mature in the faith have the responsibility of living consistent lives before our children so they grow up to be dedicated, mature, godly individuals. We have the responsibility to live that out before the people in our workplace, people in our school, people in our community. Whatever our relationship is to those round about us, we are to be, as Philippians says, that shining light, that person that we can look to, that just doesn't speak the truth, but lives the truth. May God help us to live the truth that we know, to be consistent in our lives. Let's pray. Our Father, help us. Help us to be people who are consistent, people who actually practice our faith, people who are not Christians in name only, but people who take what we have learned and known and now use it on a daily basis. Help us in all of our endeavors to show how that as Christians, we do whatever we do in a different way from those that aren't Christians. For whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do all to the glory of God. Lord, help us to model that. Help us to understand it for ourselves. Not just intellectually, but Lord, really come to apprehend how we are to live our life that brings glory to you and then help us to do that and then be that role model and pass it on to someone else. Oh Lord, it's a, it's a great task, but we're thankful for your spirit who is at work within us. So we pray and ask that you would be pleased to take the truth of your word, apply it to our hearts and lives, give us a willing spirit and give us a formidable spirit to be consistent, to push on, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, even as we're told in this very same book. Uh, Lord, help us to be consistent. In Jesus' name, amen.